Hello and welcome to Extreme Perspectives. This is a monthly podcast created by The Sense Network to bring you conversations with people who see things differently and think differently. This podcast is for people who want to expand their mind and develop their creative intelligence. I'm your host, Jeremy Brown. For 20 years, I've been seeking out people from the edges of culture, the creators, outliers, misfits, rebels, and the crazy ones. People who want to change things and push the human race forward. In this episode of Extreme Perspectives, I speak with the transitional outlier, nomad, community advocate, actress, and serial entrepreneur, Jacqueline Travaglia. Jackie's friends aren't sure if she's a spy or an escort. She lives a nomadic lifestyle with bases in the US, Australia, Mexico, and the UK. She works just four hours per week on each of her businesses. These include renting camper vans to running ghost hunting tours and trading bricks and mortar properties. Jackie believes in the power of community. As a member of the Sense Network, she shares her account of working on many Sense Worldwide brand collaborations and her experiences of Burning Man and the creation of a new digital country, Plumia. Hi, Jackie. Hi, Jeremy. Good to see you. Good to see you too. Thank you for joining us. We've sort of indirectly known each other for a very long time, so I'm delighted that we get to have a proper conversation. As you know, I'm not going to let you get a word in Edways until I've asked my first question, and then we can roll from there. So, Jackie, are you an outlier, a misfit, a rebel, or a crazy one? Well, I've been thinking about this, and I think it's a little bit like one of those dispersonality assessments. So I think it's actually a little grid. You've got each of those criteria in a different segment. And I think I lie a little bit in each of those quadrants, I think. And I think at different stages of my life, I've actually been in different quadrants, a little bit more than others. So I was trying to think of times in my life I've been in each of them. I think I was a misfit when I was 14 years old. So at that point, I was a little bit different, you know. I, I had blue dreadlocks and I used to wear my Doc Martens and listen to punk music and I was a huge animal liberationist. So I used to do things like run around to the local circuses when they were on and put up these placards and save the elephant, don't go to the circus. So I used to do all those sorts of things and try and break into farms and free the animals. So I went through that 14-year-old misfit stage, but I realised I wasn't getting anywhere with my messages. People wouldn't take me seriously. So I tried to kind of reel that back a little bit and pop into a bit of a more mainstream quadrant. So that was that was a very short-lived, brief misfit stage. And then I did become an outlier during COVID. So during COVID, I thought, fantastic I'm going to try and live my dream of living off grid and I think we actually chatted while I was off grid when I was living in the farm in Hampshire but um yeah I thought right I'll be off grid and we had a septic tank we had to get a truck to come in and deliver all the oil for the heating and we had our own vegetable patch I got some chickens rescue chickens of course (laughs) that I freed and it was nice it was nice for a couple of months I really liked being what I felt was an outlier. I was a little bit separate from society. I was totally self-sufficient. I didn't need anyone. I didn't really fit into what everyone else was doing. But then it got really tiring. I got quite lonely, actually. I didn't feel that I had anyone that was on the same wavelength as me. And then I started twitching my curtains. And that was the day I realized being an outlier didn't really suit me. I remember a car drove by my farmhouse and I thought, 
what's the car doing there? And I looked out the curtains and I was taking down the number plate and I was all suspicious and I said to my partner, why is there a car driving by our house? And I thought, Jackie, this really isn't suiting you. This, this is driving you crazy. These poor people are just driving by for a Sunday drive <laughs> and you think there's something wrong with that. So, you know, that was my outlier experience, I guess I would call it. That's, that's what I felt it was. So I don't know. I mean, what are the other categories? Rebel? I guess sometimes I'm a little bit anti-establishment, but again, I, I feel that to get my messages across in life, I need to try and conform and morph into the mainstream a little bit to be relatable to people. So I try and not be in that category too much, which I guess my process of elimination, it means it means I'm crazy, doesn't it? Yeah, my, my behaviour is probably a little bit strange to people sometimes, a little bit illogical. One minute I'm living in a city, the next minute I'm on a farm in the middle of nowhere, then I'm living on a narrow boat. My friends and family just can't keep up. So I think I would go with the crazy category, 90%. And then the rest of it's probably 3%, 3%, 3%. 3%, 3%. recurring I guess. I love that you've broken that down into a profile. I think that suits many of us. Well I don't know I don't I mean I know a little bit about you that's why we're talking but you've certainly shunned convention shall we say in terms of how you live your life or currently live your life you're a little bit of a global nomad I think that's the best way to describe you and but you also it's not like you're doing that with a backpack on your back right you've managed to sort of figure out how to sort of play the game and I guess win and you're living quite a a remarkable sort of let's just say existence should we say existence is that okay that always sounds a bit strange when you can say that but yeah and a a remarkable existence but I'd love to know a little bit more you've you've touched on a few things there I didn't know you had blue dreadlocks so that's a really good start that image that that conjured up for me What, what just a brief history of the sort of creative journey that you've been on to to kind of get where you're at today. One of the key things that happened to me was when I was seven years old, I had a long lost aunt who died over in Italy. And my father thought it'd be a great idea to take me out of school for a year. So I grew up in Australia, in Melbourne. And um, I remember it was really boring. I didn't understand the language. I was being dragged around to law offices and accountancy firms. And eventually my father befriended a woman in a park and uh, she happened to have a mutual friend of my father's. And this is in a little, little village in um, northern Italy called Trento. And then my father just said, oh, if you've got any children Jackie's age? And she did. And I, I really hit it off with the little girls. And then before I knew it, my dad vanished. I didn't see him for almost eight months. He just left me with this woman. And um, I remember being a bit confused about it. He just <laughs> met her in the park and said, right, take my daughter. <laughs> So I ended up in this remote village in Italy and it was fantastic. I was fully immersed into the local culture. At that point, I was fluent in Italian because I learned just from, from living with a family that didn't speak any English. And being a child was, um, it was fantastic. I wasn't scared. I remember just being very open and just, if you remember being a child yourself, you just sort of led, you just follow the adult. So it was all it was all perfectly logical to me. I was with this adult and I just followed what she told me to do and where she went. I never really wondered why dad left me there. And then one day my dad showed up again and then I went back to Australia. So I think that was the first big experience that I had that was a little bit unusual for me. And I remember just thinking, oh my gosh, people live in different ways. You know, the buildings were different. The language was different. The culture was different. 
I was drinking coffee for breakfast as a child, as a seven-year-old, and eating cakes for breakfast. It was brilliant. I absolutely loved the culture. And I remember every night before bedtime, I'd be given a limoncello or a little chinar, which is a liquor as well. So it was just fantastic. And I think that made me realise the world's a really, really big place. And it just made me made me want more, really. As soon as I got back to Australia, I just I yearned to travel again. I wanted to see what the rest of the world was like. I wanted to hear new languages. I wanted to see new architecture. So that really started the whole journey. And I found it really hard to fit back in after that experience. I remember going to school and the other children didn't recognise me. I recognised them, but they'd forgotten about me. I looked different. I had a bit of an accent. Um, I think when you're young, you do change a lot over the period of the year. Unlike when you're a little bit older, things don't really change so much. And uh, yeah, that was a really um, it was a really big moment for me in life. Wow. What's fascinating, you touched on personality tests, and that's one of the things that we've been looking at over the last few years with UCL and our own team here. We've got our own research and development team um, which is Adam and Layla, who are looking at traits and profiles. And these are the things, actually, because you've mentioned that, I was just going to highlight it. Actually, it's it's living in different cultures and getting exposed to different cultures. And, you know, those formative experiences as well can actually have a, you know, that kind of mind expansion that you get you know, early on can actually have a profound effect on your outlook. Because, you know, there's a few things about this. One of them you have to learn to assimilate very quickly when you're in a new culture. You have to be able to read all the things that are different from where you've come from that you take for granted. And I think those skills kind of how to, you know, people talk about reading the room, but you're reading your entire environment. And we see similar experiences like, say, military children who have moved around from maybe military base to military base also have to assimilate very quickly. And actually, this can lead to what we would look at sort of more creativity, if you like. There's just that sort of way of seeing things differently and thinking differently. So that's a very, that's a very cool start, eight years old, and then back to Australia. Yes, it was great. But I, I agree. I'm not, I'm obviously don't have a psychology background. I'm interested in it. But I think your um, neural pathways, if, if you keep going down the same route all the time on autopilot, you end up very stuck in that path. So it's good to be exposed to different things. I remember as a child, I was very easygoing because um, I think because of that experience, I couldn't be particular. I've got nieces and nephews now and they throw hissy fits if they don't get, you know, Nutella, they don't get their favourite Wheaties for breakfast. Because I was exposed at such a lot, young, young age to a different culture, I, I didn't have that luxury of being particular about things, which I think is a benefit because it makes me a bit easier going and I don't get stressed over little things that don't work out because I've, I'm, I'm used to things being different all the time. Yeah, well, we often talk about comfort with ambiguity, but a lot of people take comfort and familiarity and actually as soon as you just get used to things being different or, I mean, I love, sort of, I say, being on the road and travelling too because it's just stimulation and I kind of need it. But, you know, I'm, I rarely look at my phone even if I'm walking around the streets of where I live I'm looking up I'm looking around and it's like there's plenty of stuff to kind of keep questioning where you actually are too so yeah I I completely see your point of view on that a quick break from this month's episode if you're enjoying the conversation remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and don't forget 
to dive into the back catalogue for more mind-expanding perspectives from the edges of culture. One of the things that you do now, your love of travel, you've managed to build that into your life, right? You seem to be travelling a lot. I, I love travel, absolutely love travel. Um, so I guess my first huge trip that I did, I was 21 years of age. I went to Monash University in Australia and I studied business commerce. I didn't really enjoy the course overall. I was very lucky though. I was headhunted by an engineering firm and they paid for my last year of university and they said that I could work a couple of days a week and in exchange I got credits for a couple of subjects. So I was off to a flying start. As soon as I finished university, I had a full-time job had a really good income, but I hated it. I was really depressed. The building was full of just middle-aged white males, which I, I couldn't relate to as a 21-year-old girl fresh out of university, so I didn't have any friends there. I didn't really enjoy the work. I didn't really fit well in the routine of the nine to five. I wasn't used to that. And then one day I just had enough and I went home and I said, that's it, I'm, I'm going. And I put an advertisement out in the local newspaper and I said, there's a, a big clearance sale at my house, show up. Anything that's not sold would be given away. And people came to my house and they bought everything I owned. So couches, TVs, everything. And I ended up left with one backpack. And then I called my boss up at this engineering firm and I said, I'm really sorry, I'm not coming to work on Monday. And he said, oh, Jackie, please, please, you know, come in, we can talk about it. I said, no, no, I'm going traveling. Anyway, he jumped in his car and drove to my house and he realized I was serious. There was a jumble sale going on. Everything was being sold. There was nothing he could do. So I decided I'd just go on an adventure. And um, I bought a Greyhound bus ticket for around Australia. And it was unlimited for, I think it was six months or something like that. And I didn't have much money saved and I just took off. That, that was my first big trip. I was 21. I was pretty naive. Unfortunately, I can't get away with saying that um, you know, I'm only 25. I'm a bit older than that. So in the time, the time I was 21, there were no mobile phones, there was no internet. So it was a real adventure. So I'd just jump on the bus and see a place I liked and, and get off. And it was pretty um, nerve-wracking at times, but it was also confidence building. I, I really didn't have much planning. I remember one time I got off in this little country town in the middle of nowhere. It would have been two in the morning because I was hungry. And I just jumped off the bus and the bus driver said, are you sure you want to get off here? And I said, yeah, yeah, I'll be fine. I jumped off. There was, there was nothing in the town. There was a couple of pubs and they were all closed. And I thought, what am I doing? I couldn't find anywhere to eat. I couldn't find anywhere to sleep. There was no internet, no mobile. I couldn't call anyone or research a Airbnb or no Airbnb. So I ended up just sleeping on the beach. But yeah, it was it was an adventure. <laughs> it was a real adventure. And then at another point I ended up in Sydney and I ended up running out of money. So I said to the youth hostel that I'd work behind reception for a couple of days and they agreed to that. And then I got up to Queensland and uh, worked on a yacht for a while as a hostess because I needed somewhere to stay in some money as well. And the pay was terrible. I think I was paid equivalent to £50 a week. But I got free accommodation and uh, food, etc. And then I met some boys who had an old car that was worth about £200 and we decided to drive through the Northern Territory, which for those who aren't familiar, it's a huge desert. So <laughs> we drove all the way from Queensland up to Darwin. It took a couple of days. It was the desert. You could drive for a whole day without seeing a town or another vehicle. And we're pretty stupid. We're all in our early 20s. We didn't know anything about cars. It would overheat. We'd have to stop the car and just sit in the car and wait for the car to cool down and, and get driving again. So 
I had an absolute ball because I was naive and I was fearless, but I couldn't do it now. I was so stupid and I was so lucky and I'd be so petrified to do that now, even with mobile phones and Airbnb and all the technology. I, I couldn't, I just couldn't do it anymore. So you're right, my traveling styles changed significantly from 21-year-old me. Did you ever have a job again after that? Yeah, I had many jobs actually. I ended up, um, I fell in love with a Swiss boy I was traveling with and then uh, he had to go back to Switzerland because the visa expired for him and I couldn't get to Switzerland because I didn't have a visa. It was all very Romeo and Juliet. You know, young love, you think it's the end of the world and, you know, you're never going to be happy in love again. So that was all quite traumatic. It was so traumatic I ended up in Brisbane because I had an uncle who lived there and I said, gosh, can I come stay with you? I'm out of money. He said, yes. So I ended up in Brisbane and then I applied for a job in IT um, with my commerce background and I got my first professional job. I ended up working in IT just by default because that was the only place I could afford to get to from Darwin back down to Brisbane. (laughs) When were you gripped by the entrepreneurial spirit? Well, I stayed at IT for a while, to be honest. So I worked in that company in Brisbane for a while. And then we're heading into Y2K. So the year 2000, there was a Y2K bug. The whole world was going to explode. Planes were going to fall out of the sky when the clocks turned over. So working in IT was quite good because I was offered um, work in England. And that's why I ended up in England. So I was offered a highly skilled migrant visa and the salaries were three times what I could earn in Australia. And then I worked in IT for years and um, I just had enough of that as well. I I reached the peak of my career. I was earning very good money and I had a nice sports car. I had a lovely house, went skiing every season, went on beach holidays. Everything was perfect, but I just wasn't happy. I had old BlackBerry phone. Everyone had BlackBerry phones back in those days in the 90s. I had a BlackBerry phone that would ring all the time, weekends, weeknights. My boss was always on the line and I just, I found it very stressful. In all honesty, I was probably working 24-7. I was expected to be on call for that high salary. And then I read The 4-Hour Workweek by Tim Ferriss. That came out around that time, and that's what changed my life. That's really what inspired my entrepreneurial side. So I remember reading the book, and I was like, wow, this is so me. I relate to it. I remember it said that you could be um, time-rich and financially poor or financially rich and time-poor. And the key to happiness is finding that that balance. And that's what really inspired me to try and find that that balance. So I quit my job and I decided I was going to start a business. I wasn't happy with working nine to five. Well, I thought I should probably do something I'm passionate about, which is traveling and ghost hunting. And so I went back to my hometown in Australia, a little place called Williamstown. And I had a lot of ghost stories up my sleeve from growing up there. And I just remember one day I thought, I'll put on a ghost tour. And I thought, I'll launch it around Halloween time. So I contacted the local newspapers and they were wrapped. They had no Halloween activities on at all. And I got lots and lots of coverage. And I was so excited. I was standing on a little street corner, all dressed up like a medieval wench, waiting for people to come on my little tour. And I thought maybe I'd get five people, 10 people. There was no booking required. They just had to show up and give me cash in hand. And I just remember dozens and dozens of people showed up and they kept coming and coming and pouring in. And there were so many people in the Commonwealth Reserve. I thought, what am I going to do? There's over 100 people. 
I thought, geez. So I called my mum up, even though I was growing up. I still call mum up for help. The mum, come help me. I've got too many people. So she showed up in a little car and mum was collecting the cash and I was collecting the cash and I ran the tour. And that's when I thought, my gosh, I think I actually have a business idea here. So that was my first big business, the ghost tour company. And that's still going today. So that was started uh, about 14 years ago and it's still going. And where are ghost tours run now? So I'm running the ghost tours anywhere that I like to visit. So I'm really driven in life by passion. Even though I come from an IT background where we plan everything, I lead my life very differently. I just think, what do I enjoy doing? And I'll do it. So I thought, I like Adelaide. I went to Adelaide for a holiday. When I was there, I asked a couple of people about their ghosts and I found some ghost stories. So I set up the ghost tour in Adelaide. And then I went to um, Sydney. I did the same. Uh, Gold Coast in Australia, I did the same, and London as well. But I was going to ask, um, we, we actually did a big sort of study looking at retirement. Was that something that you got involved with? Did you get involved with that project? Because I know you've been a member of the Sense Network now quite a long time, I'll just say that. One of the earlier members of joining the community, and you have contributed to a double-digit number of projects. And I know one of the things that we, we looked at, and I'm, I can't actually remember whether you're on that project or not, was was looking at the whole idea of retirement because there's some really good TED talks on that one too, right? Like taking retirements every six or seven years and taking that year out and then working for six or seven years and kind of getting that ratio of sort of saving and spending, which I've always thought was really cool. But then there's you know there's other models that we can apply to that as well, and I think it's yeah it's having conversations with people like you that sort of prove that it's possible to do that. It's possible to sort of design your life in a different way and live your life in a different way. And there are more and more people doing that now. And actually, a lot of that was maybe accelerated by the pandemic, time for reflection and realizing what's important in life and how to do it differently. Some people haven't survived that. And they've kind of gone back and done other things. But I think there's yeah a lot of that thinking is now in the foreground and we can kind of talk about it and and consider it in a very different way than maybe when we were at school pre-internet and pre-phones etc. I agree and I think technology has really driven the ability for people to be whatever they want to be. If you want to be an author, you can self-publish now through Amazon. If you want to be a, a an artist, you can self-publish. Um, if you want to be a cleaner, you can put your services out on Truro. Anything you want to do, you can do. You can even be a hotelier on a small scale through Airbnb. So I think it's really facilitated people being able to have this lovely work-life balance and be entrepreneurs because education is no longer needed or formal education. You don't need to prove that you've gone to a hospitality course anymore to run a hotel or prove you've got it, whatever it is. You know, anyone can do anything now. I think it's a really exciting time for people. So have you started other businesses since the Lantern Ghost Tours? Yes, I have. So um, I also work as an actress. So I have an agent in London. So I do quite a bit of acting as well when it all fits in time-wise. So I always dread getting a big role when I'm overseas and thinking, oh, I've got to fly back. It has happened a couple of times. I've got that call. Um, I got one last year. I was in Australia and uh, I got a pretty big job and she said, you need to fly back next week. And I just said, it's not going to happen. So it's hard to, hard to line things up. So when things line up, it's great. But when they don't, 
it, it doesn't. Um, and yeah, I've started up other businesses. During the pandemic, I started a camper van business because I figured people would be looking more towards staycations. And the camper vans went really well. They're still going strong, actually. So I'm thinking about whether to sell the business now or scale it up. Um, it's at that turning point where the, the vans are always booked out and starting to take a little bit than four hours a week of my time. You've just given me a clue now. So when you said it was more than four hours a week, so your theory is with a four-hour work week, you could be running 10 businesses to do a 40-hour week, right? Exactly. That's exactly it. I actually um, break my days up. So during the day, I spend an hour or so on each, each business, and that's it. Wow. But I'm always amazed that you also find time to collaborate with us on projects, and you've worked on many. So this is a great opportunity for me to ask, you what is it about the projects that surface within the sense network that we're working on that attracts you to them what do you get out of that well i love creating and i love working and my personal definition of work has nothing to do with monetary gain so for me working is doing something that i enjoy doing that's fulfilling regardless of income and I think especially being an entrepreneur, well, you know, it's like we run a business, you could put many, many hours in and not actually get a financial return. So I'm, I'm used to that concept of working without money coming back. So the way I decide what I'm going to work on is do I enjoy it? And does it bring me joy? Do I get to create something I'm excited about? And do I like the people I'm working with? And, and Sense ticks all of those boxes. I love creating. I love the challenges you throw me. I really do like these little... um brain puzzles that you give me some of the questions and some of the projects I've worked on have been have been really challenging and really interesting so I, I find it fascinating and I've really enjoyed especially the in-person um, experiences that I've had I know over the last few years it's been more online but I remember years ago when I started I think maybe I started with you 15 years ago or so in London I remember going to an event in Soho and collaborating with a group of people and there was another event in Shoreditch as well and I really do enjoy being around other creative types I, I enjoy it more than watching a movie or going to the theatre to be honest so it's mainly from the enjoyment side more than anything. I've always maintained precisely what you said so actually that's amazing for me to hear that unprompted because that was precisely the idea behind it yes it's nice to be rewarded. Some people say, I want it to go to charity. Some people say, I want this. You know, but you know, that is important for uh, some people who we're, we're collaborating with. But I've always said the primary motivator should be because you're going to, you know, I've always said, if you get the projects right and the people's right, everything else will follow. And pretty much what you said too, it's, you know, is it a challenge that kind of, sometimes they're just really dull but our job is to make them exciting. It's like, how do we frame this in a different way or come at it from a different angle that it's actually going to ignite people's imaginations and sort of go, yeah, I've never actually thought about cholesterol like that or whatever it might be. It's that ability to, to look at potentially some of the most mundane things or sometimes it is profoundly important things that we're, we're looking at too. But that's the primary motivation. It's got to be creatively and intellectually challenging, I think, and, and giving us stuff to do. And the other thing that we hear quite often, if we ask um, maybe to reflect on an experience that you've done many times, so here we are on a podcast, both wearing headphones, once we ask people to stop and think about the relationship that they've got with their headphones, most people never actually do that, looking at the role of a pair of headphones and sort of 
how they kind of help you focus, how they help you relax, and all of these other things that you don't normally stop and think about until we ask you to stop and think about them. So that is, uh, I'm really pleased you said that. Thank you. Thank you, Jackie. Of course. Well, thank you for involving me. I remember one of the first projects I worked on with you was about 15 years ago, and it was a cleaning product, toilet cleaning product. I won't say the name, <laughs> but a uh, very mundane topic, but I had a fantastic time. We did so many creative exercises. I met really interesting people. And also I do apply some of those exercises to my own life and my own business. So I'm actually getting free training from your company as well and your uh, your network, your extended network. A lot of training, a lot of bouncing ideas off each other that, that benefit me outside of the network. Amazing. Well, we should maybe name it because that that project with the future of looking at future of cleaning bathrooms, I remember there was a remarkable mix of people in room that day there was a guy in there that like showered six times a day or something because he was an athlete well, why did I remember that and having people <laughs> in the room who had obsessive compulsive disorder as well so probably spent more time than most thinking about cleaning their bathroom and I think some of the ideas that came out of that in fact one of the ideas that came out of that was the disposable brush head for scrubbing bubbles but that that was that was an amazing sort of breakthrough that came out of that and it wasn't from going out and talking to sort of I say regular people and so often I think businesses are obsessed with wanting to talk to their target audience that they think this you know perfect person exists somewhere and they just don't and I think by talking to people who see things differently and think differently can actually bring those fresh perspectives that lead to those breakthrough ideas and I think that is what we're really trying to bring to the world so I'm glad you're getting something out of it too because that's also we realized was something that was really motivating there are certain you know we don't try and hide what we do it's very much open we share an awful we try and make it as clear as possible as to why we're doing this and why we're doing that sometimes we like to kind of cloak stuff so we sort of hide things for a while but you know we usually reveal who it is and why we're working on it and why we haven't disclosed something because we then you know want, sometimes when you disclose things you see things differently again and so that's all part and parcel of the, the the process that we go through but I'm pleased that you mentioned the the learning thing because as well as it being creatively and intellectually stimulating we think that's also important too that we can transfer these skills and put these skills and this knowledge in the hands of more people because if we figure more people can be doing this they can be improving or you know influencing the bits of the world that they get to touch and have some sort of influence over shaping and that's a that's a good thing and that's one of the things that we we're really trying to do with the creative intelligence course as well, which brings together quite a lot of our thinking. Um, but that was, you know, that that was a, a win-win because we were not only giving that training away, if you like, but it meant that we had a shared set of values and ways of working as a network and a community as well. So communicating with one another or having expectations that, okay, it's all right not to know or whatever we might be working on, it made it okay. And people were a lot actually better at collaborating together by, by sort of um, doing that creative intelligence course and sort of having those shared values and ways of working. Well, what I've noticed is everyone's creative and everyone has ideas, but the difference between a sense network and, I guess, 
focus groups or everyday people that I meet is that somehow you've fostered a really nurturing, supportive, collaborative environment so people aren't afraid to express themselves. So I don't think you'd be able to get these insights from Joe, Joe Bloggs down the street. I don't think if I walked up to someone at a supermarket and said, what do you think of toilet brushes? I don't think they'd admit to me openly they have OCD. But somehow you've created an environment where people are comfortable to open up. So how did you create that environment? You know, sometimes it's the experiences that you do do that shape you. But sometimes when I was younger, I planned, you know, let's not have any regrets. But I do have one. And one of my real regrets was, despite being encouraged to go and do an art foundation course for a year, I never did it. I was actually too busy dancing in a field to free at free parties. So um, it was sort of misspent youth. But very regretfully, I, I didn't do that. And I think when I look back, there's something about not doing that that I kind of try to recreate a permissiveness, uh, an openness to ideas. Because a foundation course in art is really about experimenting with lots of different media and different forms of that expression. So, and and I think that it's that open-mindedness and sort of feeling your way until you find something that's interesting was one of the kind of the founding principles, if you like, that I hadn't, I'm only just I'm articulating this now. It's not one of those things that I've really um, given a huge amount of thought to, but that's probably one of the things that I wanted to do early on is just create that sense of, permissiveness for you know open to all everyone and everything and I also think that even though I was maybe dancing in fields the people that were there was everyone from travelers to gardeners when I say travelers sort of people who were living on converted coaches with wood-burning stoves in them and I don't know if they had blue dreadlocks but they certainly had dreadlocks so that was sort of the the the, the sort of that alternative traveller community that were organising lots of these parties in fields. But then you would have musicians there, of course, because it's about music. Um, but then you would also have gardeners there and you would have criminals there and you would have artists there and it would just be attracting all of these different people. And, you know, actually, if you stop and think about it, there was very few forums where you get such a collision of different worlds and actually to then all be in a room dancing is a pretty powerful uh, human experience and obviously there's more and more people discovering it now but that was quite a niche thing because this is also before sort of dance music had really made it into clubs so that was for me uh, a really profound moment in my life and I think that's something that I've just taken with me ever since is just that you know being able to listen to people even though they look different and sound different or might have a radically different outlook on the world to you. In fact, I think that's one of the things about the Sense Network. I've, I've said this before, but I, I've got a very binary view of people in the world. There are sponges and there are stones. And the stones have decided that they don't want to take anything more on board and, you know, don't want to learn anything else. And yet sponges just want to absorb more and more and more. And I think that one of the great things about the Sense Network, we do say meet people from worlds unlike your own. But one of the reasons why it's so you can have your own worldview challenged, because some, there's something very special sometimes about having everything that you once thought was true to be told that it's no longer true. And I think that sort of 
plasticity of thought and your ability to unthink stuff and rethink stuff is a really important human skill. And so with the Sense Network, I think it was just a case of how do we collect more people like that? Because as we know, most social networks are filled with people who see the world the same way and think the same way. And that's why we get echo chambers. And I don't like echo chambers. And over the last few years, there's been huge amounts on behavioral economics and our biases and all of this kind of stuff that many people knew intuitively, but it's great to see the science of that now. And actually, we're really pleased. This is why I mentioned the research that we've been doing earlier, because I think it's time to bring this idea of cognitive diversity, these people who see things differently and think differently, and the value of that. I say for business, because business has got so much influence on the environment and you know how we behave as humans and what we do and how we do it that I think if we can bring that thinking in it will have a profound effect on what we choose to make and how we choose to act. Well congratulations you've built a very just supportive collaborative creative community and I think what you just touched on is interesting that I think in general we tend to categorize people in the wrong way we're categorizing people based on their say nationality their gender their occupation. So as you're saying, with these dance parties you went to, the Sense Network, everyone's totally different. But what you're probably categorizing on, maybe, is values. Yeah. So it's a different categorization method. Maybe it's values of community, inclusiveness, creativity. So that's something that everyone has in common. It's, it's a slightly different way of filing people, if you like. like. I went to Burning Man years ago. Have you been to Burning Man? I haven't, but it is on the bucket list. I think you created the original Burning Man. It sounds like this is what you were doing all those years ago. Yeah, Burning Man's amazing. I went to it in 2017. There was over 80,000 people. Um, For people who don't know what it is, it's in the uh, Nevada desert, Black Rock City. And the whole idea is you have to be totally self-reliant. You need to have a community spirit. You need to be creative. Um, you need to be self-regulating as well and basically not allowed to purchase anything. You, you show up in your own camper van, ideally. It's just a desert. That's all that's there. And you need to bring everything you need for the 14 days with you. So you need to bring your water, your food, everything. You can't sell or buy anything. So it means you have to be quite organized and have enough supplies for yourself to, to eat and water to drink the whole time you're there. And it's just amazing sense of community. So I was in a community called Techno Tutu Community. So we played techno music all the time because the idea is you give something to the community so people could come and have free music. They came and had free food, free alcohol. And then there were other camps. So one of the other camps was a Christian camp and you could have your feet washed. They brought plenty of water and they'd wash your feet for you. And another camp was a Californian winemaker's camp. So they'd give free wine. And it was just amazing because people are just giving without asking for anything. And because there was nothing to purchase, it was not commercial at all. If you needed something, you had to rely on the community. So I needed a plaster at one point and uh, I had to ask around, does anyone have a plaster? Does anyone know anyone who has a plaster? I've cut myself. And that community spirit is fantastic because people are giving and sharing and, and collaborating. It was, a, it was a beautiful, beautiful thing. And we also self-regulated ourselves. If someone got a bit out of control, it was a community's responsibility to, to pull them back into line. It's no uh, 
security, there's no uh, policing or anything of that type at Burning Man. So it was a really good experience. The more work that I do, and maybe the more experience I've got, I realise just how important values and, and ways of working are. And I do believe that if we could get to a universal set of shared values and ways of working, it would be you know, a very different place. But I think right now, I think the world is spending an awful lot of time creating more divisions and, you know, people saying how different they are from other people. And actually, the one thing, if I think back, if I don't want to sound like too much of a hippie, but there was this concept of one love. That was the, one of the things that was a prevailing thought flying around there. It was a really powerful idea. And actually having all those different people together in a room was kind of, it was like a celebration of that. You didn't really have to talk about it. You just threw your arms in the air. But it was a very profound experience. But I think that's ultimately what we're working towards. It's not just a, a constant euphoric high, but it's just, it's knowing in your daily life that, you know, there is that support structure there and it's unspoken, but when you need it, it's right there. So I think that, yeah, you're you're absolutely right. I think being able to model that with Burning Man, the more people that can experience that. And that's another thing that we talk about a lot. Often you hear people say, oh, well, you've got to build trust. Well, I disagree. I believe that humans naturally trust one another and it's about maintaining the trust and not doing anything so people might question that. And I think the moment that that's lost, that we lose everything. And often it's when things go wrong. That's the true test. You know, that's the true test of hotels, restaurants, you know, anything you go to. If something goes wrong, it's, it's how do they, it's not the, the smoothness and the slickness of the kind of the, the pre-designed experience. It's actually when things go wrong, how do they handle it? And that's when you see the, the real test of a team. Trust is a really interesting topic. I think you could talk about it for hours, but I really think, in order to be happy, in order to be creative, you need to be vulnerable and you need to trust. Because if you're not vulnerable in life, you can't achieve anything. I mean, we need to trust that this app is going to work to record us. You need to trust that I will show up when I say I'm going to show up. We need to trust so many things. And um, I say to people, if people don't trust things, I'm like, well, on a daily basis, you're trusting a thousand plus people. You're trusting the tube driver. You're trusting the people working at the tube station. You're trusting the bank teller. You're trusting, you know, the person serving you poached eggs are not going to poison you. So, so many things go right. Yeah, sure, sometimes we're let down as humans because we're not perfect or maybe our standards are too high, so we're let down. But the majority of the time, I think people are trustworthy and things really do work. It's only a small, small minority of the time that things don't. Where are you off to next? You're currently in... Melbourne. So I um I follow a man called Andrew Henderson. He runs a channel called Nomad Capitalist, and uh, I've been watching his channel for a long time. Basically, it's all about how to live globally, work around the world, invest around the world. And his key takeout, I guess, is that no one country can offer everything you need. So, for instance, the best education might be in India, but you've got the best career opportunities in England. The best place to live is Costa Rica. And, uh, you know, the best, uh, I don't know, the best of everything is in different countries. So why should you have to settle for one country? So I have the same uh, viewpoint on life. And so I have several bases. I don't enjoy the backpacking in cars with random people anymore. I prefer to be comfortable and have creature comfort. So I have a few homes around the world. So I've got my Melbourne base. I have a place in Surface Paradise in Queensland, a nice tropical place. 
a place in Tulum in Mexico, um, and a place in London, and a place in in Hampshire in the countryside, and, and a base in LA. And I I float between I float between the homes depending on what I'm doing work wise, um, you know, friends, engagements, what's going on in the world. So during COVID, I was very fortunate. I ran off to Mexico. So I hid out in the countryside for a while and then I was able to, to go to Mexico and stay in Tulum until the end of the lockdown. So that, that's my that's my view. So yes, I'm off to England next. Um, I'll be there for a few months and uh, yeah, I'll probably pop into Mexico at some point as well. Come by and have a coffee with us when you're in London or hopefully we'll have a project to, to work on. But it sounds like I need to subscribe to that podcast. So, Jackie, tell me about Plumia. Well, a few years ago, I went to a nomad capitalist conference, which attracts people who believe everyone should be free to travel and go to the places they're treated best, live in any country they want, work in any country they want. So I went to one of these conferences in Mexico, and I met a group of very fascinating people who are trying to start up the world's first internet country called Plumia. And they really changed my thinking about countries. So at the moment, your citizenship is linked to a geographic region. And I believe the way the world's going is that that's redundant. I mean, I'm Australian, but I'm barely in Australia. You know, there are people at the moment who could be American living in Italy on a nomad visa, etc. So there's not really that strong link anymore. So what the group has been discussing is what, what does a country offer um, and is there an alternative that you could have an online country? And at the end of the day, really a country, I feel, is just a membership club. So it should be shared values. But again, if you're sharing values based on geography, that doesn't always work. You might have more in common with someone who's American than English, for example. So an online country should be um, something you can opt into with shared values and independent of, of geography. So you're able to travel anywhere with this passport that has access to as many countries as possible. At the end of the day, it's what do you have in common with the country you're born in? Maybe nothing. That's always been my attitude to sort of taxes and things like that. It's just don't complain about the taxes. You know, it's just like that's the cost of living in that country. So if you want to live there, that's the sort of entry price or the kind of the cost of sticking around for a while. Hmm, but the definition of a country is changing. So more and more countries are offering nomad visas. So that means technically you could be working in another country. If you're American, for instance, you'd still be paying tax in America, even though you're not even in America. So is that fair? Is that not fair? And then this American, for instance, could be spending all their time in Croatia on a nomad visa, but they're not actually contributing financially necessarily to the country they're residing in. So I think the nomad visas and the mobility is really changing the definition of a country and the role of a country and its links to citizenship. So usually my final question is, is there anything that the Sense Network could be helping you with right now, Jackie? Me personally, no, but I did have a question for the Sense Network. How do we bridge the discrepancy between the freedom of movement in the digital world and the freedom of movement in the physical world. I, I think the world should be borderless. As you know, I'm collecting my passports and I'm collecting my, my visas and residencies because I think everyone should have the right to travel. And I look at some countries like Afghanistan, they can only travel to 23 countries visa-free as opposed to an Australian passport holder where there's 185 countries I can go to. 
So automatically someone from Afghan is at a disadvantage. They're not going to have the business opportunities, the travel opportunities, the education and the healthcare opportunities that I do just because of the visa passport lottery. So what I've noticed is with technology, that's eliminating that. So anyone can have access to online education. Anyone could do an online business. So everyone's very mobile in the digital space, but still not mobile in terms of actual geography, being able to travel to another country. And I think the two need to align more. Yeah, that is a very good question. Maybe that's going to have to be a mind expansion meetup topic that we run. So thank you. We'll give that one some more thought and we'll try and make it happen. But thank you very much, Jackie. Thank you, Jeremy. I really enjoyed the chat and uh, you gave me a lot of food for thought as well. So thank you very much. Pleasure. See you again soon. Thank you for listening to Extreme Perspectives brought to you by Sense Worldwide. We'd love you to join this conversation using the hashtag Extreme Perspectives. If you enjoyed it, leave us a review. The Sense Network collaborates with many of the world's most innovative companies to help them be more innovative. Join us at thesensenetwork.com or get in touch via email hello at senseworldwide.com.